we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend, Verisage Institute colleague and co-host, Ed Kless. And on today's show, we're interviewing another Verisage Institute fellow, Adrian Simmons. Welcome, Ed. Hey, how you doing, Ron? Very good. I know you've been traveling, man, so it's been a harried schedule for you. <laughs> it has been, has been. I was up in Connecticut at a uh, Sage uh, Partners Conference. I spent a day with them doing some consulting theory and practice work, and then, of course, flew back through Chicago and got delayed in Chicago for unknown reason. Uh, didn't get dragged off the plane, though, so that was always a positive, and uh, <laughs> ended up getting in about 2 o'clock this morning. So, Wow. Well, your airline doesn't do that. So No. <laughs> no. No. That's awesome. Well, listen, I'm excited today. We have Adrian Simmons for the first time on The Soul of Enterprise, and he's a practicing fellow with the Verisage Institute. And he uh, he's it's really interesting. He uh, began his career as an auditor at one of the big four. In fact, uh, the same one as as me, KPMG. And now he is uh, working with small business owners with his father. And uh, he eventually uh, in 2002, he, he joined his father's firm and then he eventually purchased the firm in 2014. And he speaks uh, in, at conferences and writes prolifically on the profession and he lives in Laurel, Maryland, um, his lifelong home. So welcome, Adrian, to the Soul of Enterprise. Hi, Ron. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, really, um, really interested to dive into this topic. But I, I want to ask you, what got you so interested in wanting to study the theory of value? And I mean, really, really study it and go back and look at the historical origins of some of these ideas and theories? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, obviously, you know, I practice in business as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, and I guess my natural inclination is to try to understand and try to deeper my understandings. And as so I figure, hey, if I'm going to be doing this, I'm going to be doing this for a while. I'd like to sort of grow in my knowledge of what it is that's actually happening. And, um, Going to the root of an idea or a concept is just sort of part of my nature. So I say, you know, let me let me find a source that's going to help trace through just the history of economic thought, because thoughts really are critical to sort of how we act. And I know we've chatted about this before, but it's one of those things where uh, as a thought evolves, if you're off by a degree or two, the further you follow it, the, the more off track you are, but the better you can understand some of those embedded assumptions and stay on track, the more effective you can be with what you are, the more truer you can ring. So that was sort of the impetus for, for starting to get more involved and deeper in this. Well, I couldn't agree more. And in fact, you know, who said this really well and, and expressed it in words very similar to what you just said is a guy named Mark Blog 
who said, uh, wrote in a book, uh, the book is not only an economist, and he, he said this, he said, in the final analysis, I find nothing as intellectually satisfying as the history of ideas. Uh, you know, mm. without the history of economics, economic theories just drop from the sky. You have to take them on faith. He said, the moment you wish to judge a theory, you have to ask how they came to be produced in the first place. And that is the question that only can be answered by the history of ideas. And I so agree with that because, like you said, it's a great point what you said that if you start wrong, it's kind of like a math equation. You know, if you if you make a mistake early on, the rest of it's going to be wrong too. Absolutely, and I think you know the history of economic thought too sort of shows that we start with a mixed bag, and it's interesting in, in the the book, some of which we'll talk about today. Um, an Austrian perspective on the history of economic thought, that you see how we as a human race have struggled to sort of come to terms with, you know, what is a fair price? What is the source of value? You know, how does interest make sense? You know, how should society be ordered? And these aren't things that, you know, just fell out of the sky and are solved. These are things that we struggle and find out, and we sort of pick and choose and say, well, we think it's this, we think it's that. And, um, and nor is it a linear process, but hopefully the further and further we go, um, we can get better and better. So I think that happens for the human race, you know, in aggregate, but also hopefully for each of our lives individually. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I mean, and the book that you, uh, you started reading and then you told Ed and I about it and we started reading it. And folks, it's an Austrian perspective on the history of economic thought before Adam Smith, which is volume one, and then in classical economics, volume two, which I think carries it up to the 18th or 19th century. And uh, it's by Murray Rothbard, who's, of course, a libertarian, famous libertarian economics writer, prolific author. Um, he had planned to write a volume three on this, Adrian, but it, unfortunately he passed away, which is really kind of sad because that would have got us into Keynes and Milton Friedman and, and some of the 20th century um, economists. But I, I guess I'll, I'll just start, it's real, and it's really hard to do this book justice, even just volume one. So I think we've kind of agreed to stick to the first couple chapters because, folks, this is over a thousand-page book. So I have not finished it all. I don't think Adrian's finished it all. But no. he, starts out, he starts out with the Greeks, Adrian. But it, before that, is there anything, because I know he's got a foreword to it, is there anything that you want to say that struck you about the early, early part of the book? Sure, yeah, a couple things. First off, uh, for folks who maybe not want to wade through all a thousand pages, and I don't blame you, uh, I would recommend that you can go to the Amazon Kindle store and download a sample, which includes the foreword, and which is, you know, maybe six or eight pages, which by itself I thought was dynamite. So uh, if you just even want to touch the surface of it and get a flavor for uh, Murray Rothbard, I, I recommend doing that. Um, and because that forward includes a lot of things, and one of the things that he points in there is about the the idea that the evolution of economic thought is not linear. And a lot of times we come out of school with this narrative that you know one thought led to another, and we just sort of been building on this for centuries. And you know what we have today is better than what has become before, just by virtue of being later in time. And one of the theses that that Murray takes on is to say. You know, that's not true. It's not true with history, and it's not true with ideas, that sometimes ideas progress, and then we go wrong somewhere, and we go down a dead end. He even calls out Adam Smith as one of those that took economic thought down dead ends that took time for us to sort of recover from that. 
time. So for me, that was a really refreshing way to sort of look at history and also an insightful way to look at history and even more brings up the importance of examining some of these assumptions that are embedded into the way we think, into our cultures and to the way we approach business that we don't even know where they come from and perhaps they're not valid. Yeah, you know, he does in this in in that foreword reject the great man ever upward history like, you know, like Adam Smith came up with all these ideas. He says, you know, you've got to look at the lesser figures in any movement of ideas. And boy, he plots out a lot of lesser figures in each one of these eras. Um just one after the other and and how close they came to some of these ideas like the subjective theory of value and also what they got you know, majorly wrong as well. And I just found that to be uh, really interesting because, yeah, it's not linear, is it? It's kind of jumps all over the place. And then you can regress for a period of time, like he charges against Smith. Absolutely. Yeah. The um, Obviously, the place where he starts is with the Greeks and with uh, Plato and Aristotle, which is just where a lot of things begin as far as history and recorded history. And, and even there you see, um, while the I think one of his lines was that at the end of the day, uh, the statement is we're either all Platonists or, or Aristotelian and um, because of the different ways of approaching the thought. But both of them, as he describes, were influenced even by the time and space that they existed. So despite being different in some other ways of understanding economics, they both were uh, influenced by the concept of the polis or the city and the importance of the stability of the state. So you see a lot of their principles and, and the way they approach some of the economic questions comes from how do we keep a system in stasis, keep the state stable and people in their places, as opposed to saying the role of the individual, which you know, comes out a little bit later, and how that leads to a greater dynamism that puts the state not in a state of stasis, but perhaps enables for greater individual flourishing. Um, and so that was really interesting to see the Greeks. Sometimes we always think, oh, yeah, these are great philosophers. But even they and their philosophy is colored by the time and space that they lived in. Absolutely. And, you know, the word economics, like he points out, com- comes from Greek. And, of course, their word it, it means household management. Um, and of course, the Greeks had a really dim view of economic innovation and entrepreneurship. I mean, on one, on, on many levels, they kind of disdained merchants and they were kind of elitist snobs. I also know they believed mm-hmm. in slavery. However, what I found really interesting about this, uh, Adrian, was that they were very attuned to the problems of scarcity ever since man's ejection from paradise. You know, Thomas Sowell pointed out on our show that the Garden of Eden was not an economy because everything was available in abundance. And mm. without scarcity, you, you don't have an economy because there's, you know, everything's available and, and all you need. Um, and I just found that really interesting that the Greeks were at least attuned to the problems of scarcity, that really it was kind of the original thinking of economists don't, you know, they don't talk in solutions, they talk in trade-offs. Just wondering if you have any. Did you have? Did that strike you as well when you read that? Yeah, I mean, first of all, the fact that the word economics, like you said, is Greek, and the modern day notion we think of, you know, this uh, economic science and these charts and calculations and theories. But you realize the word itself deals with household management. You know, what to <laughs> buy and sell for the food in the house or things like that. Um, but embedded be all behind that is is that concept of scarcity, and I guess we can define scarcity in 
multiple different ways, you know, physical resources, you know, be it be raw materials or things like that. Uh, scarcity could also be time. Um, scarcity could also be attention, perhaps, is one of the things where the choke point is in the modern day. And so understanding that sort of fundamental principle that all these decisions are being made by saying, I only have so much of X, what's the proper way to apply it? And we can even say if scarcity comes in terms of we only have one life, how are we going to spend our life and to what shall we spend it towards, towards our good? Because that scarcity then has the follow-up question as, you know, what is the good that we should be spending towards? And that sort of says, what is our nature um, and what leads to the flourishing of our nature versus what leads to the, the detriment or the degradation of our nature? So that's just a sort of a basic concept that underlies all of it. And uh, I hadn't heard that, heard that reference to, quote-unquote, before the fall, that there was no scarcity and therefore no need for economics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's how, that's how, that's why we love Thomas Sowell. That's how he put it. In fact, he opens his book, Basic Economics, with that. Uh, and I know we're going to get into the theory of value and, and the origins and antecedents of all that. And Ed will probably have some questions on uh, for you on that. But he does point out, Rothbard, Rothbard points out in this book, that Democritus, who was a contemporary of Socrates, um, he had three important ideas. This kind of blew my mind as well. He was actually one of the early founders of the subjective theory of value. He kind of got it. He, and then he had a rudimentary notion of time preference that, you know, we humans prefer a good today rather than tomorrow. And he, he was a strong advocate for private property, which you don't find amongst the Greeks. You don't find in Plato. You, you don't find even in Socrates. Uh, and Democritus kind of surprised me. He's kind of a hero here. Yeah, it is interesting how there's sort of these little sparks, and, and and then when you trace the history, sort of seeing when that spark sort of grows to be a fire, and how a spark can happen, and then sort of gets snuffed out, and then pop up later, or something like that, almost like a fuse that sort of maybe goes, the embers go dark, and then it just sort of lays dormant for a while until it flares back up. But yeah, I mean, the that ability that the Greeks are also known for, of you know, being able to sit back and reflect on human nature, that sometimes we can have some insights into those things that may not actually come from what our culture or society is telling us, but nevertheless, we can start to recognize to be true. So to, back there at the beginning, um, to have the ideas of the subjective theory of value and private property is, you know, huge for him to have sort of come across that within the time and place he, he lived. Yeah, we are talking circa 460 to 370 BC. So just to put, <laughs> just to timestamp this, yeah. that's uh, that's pretty good. But Adrian, uh, I knew this would happen. This is flying by. We're already up against our first break. And folks, we'd like to remind you if you want to contact Ed or myself, you can do so at asktsoe at verisage.com. Check out the soulofenterprise.com. We'll have full show notes and we'll certainly link to the Rothbard book. In fact, there's a Kindle version you can buy for like less than five bucks. It's a, it's a great deal. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Leading Results. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Is your website just a brochure or is it your best salesperson? If your site is not the best lead generation tool you have, we should talk. We are Leading Results. 
we build websites and marketing programs that impact your bottom line. Using HubSpot or WordPress, we'll create a website and supporting marketing program that gets your business found, converts web visitors to leads, and provides clear tracking on what is and is not working. Learn about our team and approach to your success. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back on The Soul of Enterprise with Adrian Simmons. Um, Adrian, I, I, I was listening to you and Ron talk, and I decided that my, my role in here is to maybe bring us back to the 21st century and how we can apply some of this stuff uh, to businesses today. And, uh, you know, I, it, it's funny because the, the, the opening section of the book where he does talk about the Greeks, he talks about the, the three laws of thought, which uh, is identity, uh, non-contradiction, and exclusion. And, and uh, you know, for, for those listening in, the, the, I'll give it highlight very briefly. The law of identity is, is, is pretty basic. It says A is A, right? The thing is the thing. A table is a table. You can sit on the table, but it doesn't make it a chair. It's still in and of itself a table, right? It's the, it's the, the essence. And then there's the law of non-contradiction, which is nothing can be A and not A. So like this table can't be a chair at the same time. I could maybe break the table down uh, and refashion it as a chair, in which case then it ceases to be a table, right? And then there's the third one is called the law of the excluded middle, which is everything must in the universe must be either A or not A. So which it just makes sense. That's the whole the, the whole rationality behind it. Now you would think that that this would be something that most people in business today can g- easily grasp since it goes back to you know 496 BC or whatever but i am constantly surprised really by two two things in modern business and and would wonder if you would comment on it maybe how we can apply this stuff and maybe how you've applied it in your firm is how oftentimes prospective customers or even current customers ask for things that are contradictory and why don't we as professionals tend to then call them out on it and say, look, what you're asking for here doesn't make any sense. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is a great point in terms of the practical application. Um, I think sometimes we come from a position of a customer requests this 
and we want to respond with the answer to that. So here's the Q. Whereas here's the Q, and we provide the A, so to speak. Whereas mm-hmm. I think when a customer comes to us with a Q, you know, we need to come back with is that the right Q? Is that the right question to be asking? And as professionals, I think that's really where we provide value. And sometimes, you know, this is the distinction between an order taker versus a future maker. And this is really where we can step up our game and provide a higher level of value from our customers. To say, what is it that you're really trying to accomplish at the end of the day? And to the extent we can help them sort of formulate that and come to a better understanding of that, we may not have acted yet at all, but we have provided a tremendous amount of value by giving them greater clarity for their self and their future situation. It's something I've seen, you know, in my practice, and, and I think I've come to a greater awareness over the last two or three years that some of the business owners that come to me don't really, they lack a self-awareness and they don't really know their selves and they don't really know what's important and what's truly going to be helpful for the situation. And I have to step back and say, I, and not assume that they know what they want or what they want is what's going to be helpful. I have to uh, step back and say, well, maybe let's, let's dig a little deeper here and talk about this. Um, and, and I think it's in, incumbent upon us as the professional uh, in the area to also have an opinion about what is actually good for the situation formed from our own experience, our own practice to say, this is what I've seen help people and this is what hasn't helped people. And so to the degree I don't have an opinion, I'm sort of failing in, in what I'm doing in terms of helping my customers. And that's the way we can truly lead them. Um, so p- perhaps that's a, an answer to the question. You know, it is. And, and I, I, I can just think of a couple of examples of this and you can even apply it internally in, in your organization. You know, you again, you would think that these these laws of thought that were posited, you know, centuries, millennia ago, um, th- wouldn't be so important, but they are. And again, they're they're almost consistently well, not they they are sometimes even violated today. And you would think that we'd have evolved beyond it. Let me give you another internal example, and this is one from my personal career. Uh, you know, if you if you're an organization that that does a lot of good work with regard to say its why, its mission, its purpose. Right and has clearly articulated those things, <laughs> as well as maybe some objectives. But let, let's just talk about the, the the mission. You know, it's it's a perfectly valid question to to ask as a as an internal member of that firm, whether you're an owner or not. Is is the decision that we are making here in alignment with the mission of mission or purpose of this company? Right, mm-hmm. and and filter things through that. And I and I, and this absolutely goes back to these Greeks, right? We can't we can't have contradiction. We can't have something be a and not a. We can't be making a decision in business that's contradictory to what our stated purpose is. Yet, I hear far too few conversations uh, around that subject. And um, I think it would make a lot more sense if we were we were to, we were to, to challenge one another a little bit more on those things. Absolutely. I mean, in, and in this discussion here on the natural law that, that's in the book, it, it really is our ability to apply these rules of logic to understand what is truly helpful and then therefore be able to take action. And as humans, you know, one of the things that makes us unique is that ability to self-reflect, to not only know, but to know that we know, and therefore to judge what we know to be either true or false and to sort of grow in that. And to be able to say, okay, we have a stated purpose, but are we fulfilling it? Is it a good 
good purpose and are we fulfilling it and is there a better way to fulfillment? And especially in the operation of business, right, on the economic side, so business sits within uh, one sort of sub-realm perhaps of human experience and it's important to not allow it to become untethered from the broader reality of, of human experience and human life and to make sure that that vision, like you said earlier, was aligned with just sort of our broader understanding. Because if we sort of try to segment and cut it off, and I think this is, is part of one of the temptations of our time is to sort of get so specialized and segmented that we lose the connection to the bigger picture. If we sort of focus down too much, we can make decisions that are actually contrary, actually harmful to us. And so you get, you know, decisions like, I, I don't know, maybe United is an example of popular right now where, you know, within one set of rules that seems to make sense to sort of defend your employees, but within the broader sense of human experience, you say, well, maybe this wasn't the best way. And of course, there's a bunch of facts and circumstances behind that. But in the same week, we can allow the economic um, pluses and minuses to drive decisions, and this can happen in the corporate world, but, um, you know, chasing short-term performance or trying to say, you know, the, the, the dollar is sort of the bottom line without realizing that you know, we could be acting contrary to our, our long-term best interests by um, having a limited scope of vision for that decision-making. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And, and, you know, th- this is where I, w- I would think, and those of you listening to this podcast, the, if and, and Adrian, I'm sure you would feel the same way that I did when I was put in this situation once where I was challenged by a, a, a colleague of mine who was an employee of the firm and I was the owner. And he said exactly what I said earlier, which is, Ed, tell me how this decision is in alignment with our purpose. You know, he had my attention like really quickly. Mm-hmm to be able to do that. Anyway, the second thing that I want to move on, because I mentioned that's one, is that allowing these contradictions to exist. But really then the, the next thing, and it's dealt with in the book as part of this whole idea of natural law, and I had never thought about it this way, but the, the, the notion of, uh, of, of causality is also part of the natural law. I hadn't thought that, but, it's all, but it really is true. And, that, and, of course, causality is this follows that, right? Because of this, the, the, this then happens. And Ron and I talk mm-hmm. an awful lot about this on, on some of our other shows, but I was wondering if you also see uh, in, in business today, maybe among your customers or perhaps even in your firm occasionally, where people completely mistake – correlation for causality or even just stuff that is completely unrelated for causality you know the classic case of the rooster thinking that this it, it causes the sun to go, to go up because it just happens afterwards hmm well, that's an interesting question i'm trying to think just in the experience we have with those that we serve where there's like a miss a misconnection i'm sure it exists i'm just trying to think of an example um where, yeah, I mean, sometimes people do also like to put the cart before their horse. You know, you want all the trappings uh-huh. of a successful business without an <laughs> yeah. actual focus on the customer and your business model and your, your proposition, uh, you know, your value proposition. And so you want the appearance of an entrepreneurship without a real dedication to your customer segment. Um, and, and I think that can, that's maybe an example where there's a disconnect between this causality one follows the other. Yeah, no, I think it, it tends to happen more in in the marketing realm, uh, so that you know that upfront mm-hmm. upfront area, and you know a lot of people in marketing think that you know leads cause sales, which may or not may or may not be the case. I mean, if if you're just about if you're just trying to get leads, I can give you lots of leads. Doesn't mean it's going to cause any sales, and it certainly doesn't mean it's going to cause any profitable sales. 
Yeah. And, and well, another one I like to say too is that all, all sales, that all sales are good sales. Meaning if profit is there, mm-hmm. that's a sign that's good. And, and that may or may not be the case where, you know, the, the, the sale itself. So if we, if let's say we have a marketing message that sort of gets people to act, but is it just a short term action that they're sort of responding to an extinctive response, but it has no long term effect? Or is it a long term good? And this is where I think as business owners, we have to make that decision. Another example that I often give on this one is like with uh, Blockbuster, you know, profits go up from those late fees, but you know, there's a difference between good profit and bad profit. And if you just look at the numbers, you think, oh, the profit is good, but in reality, behind that, there's a, a deeper level that, no, you're creating an increasing resentment with your, within your customer segment. You need to reexamine. And I think the same thing happens from offers we make. We may make an offer that causes people to act, but doesn't really lead their situation to change from the better. And we need to ask ourselves, you know, are we just running in circles on a hamster wheel? Or do we need to maybe change the message and be more, instead of, you know, eat, you know, take this pill and you'll be better, you know, right. get a short-term sale, but that doesn't actually change. <laughs> change that person's situation in the long run. Then they just hop from diet pill to diet pill. Um, you know, if you use this software, suddenly your business is, is you know, going to go gangbusters. Is that really the message we should be sending? Because is it actually true? Or is it just going to lead to distrust within the marketplace? So the truer I think we can make our marketing messages, the greater the trust that we embed. And people naturally gravitate towards those brands and companies that can actually fulfill the promise as opposed to just the puffery that puffs away. <laughs> yep, yep. Another good example, and then we, we're, we're up against a break here, but I just want to mention it. And you know, I, I, the, 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 the prevalence recently in the last five years or so of, of marketing A-B testing, right? That is, that is right out of this laws of thought ancient Greek stuff. I mean, it is absolutely right out, mm, yeah. out of it because that, that's, that's what it is. Okay, which one of these two gets the, gets the desired response and we go down a, di- a different path because of it. So anyway, great conversation, uh, Adrian. I wanted to make sure that we were bringing the, the, the practicality of this because I really do think, and, and Ron has taught me this, there's nothing so practical as a good theory. You just have to know when and how to apply it. And I think that's what we're doing here. But want to remind you that you can get uh, in contact with both Ron and me by sending us an email at asktsoe at verisage.com. And, of course, our website is available at thesoulofenterprise.com, where we have not only show notes and previews to upcoming shows, but our link to our archive page, where you can see all 140-plus of our previous shows and listen to them as well, as well as to see our calendar of live events. And we hope to see you at some of those in the future. But right now, we want to hear for a word from our sponsor. of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. 
The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. We're tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Adrian Simmons, and he is a practicing CPA uh, at Element CPA in Laurel, Maryland. And one thing that really struck me, Adrian, because, you know, the three of us have had discussions on papal encyclicals, right? And just yeah. all of that. Um, and Rothbard points out that leaving out the religious outlook would disastrously skew any picture of the history of economic thought. And it just dawned on me as you guys were talking that if, if you – went to school today and got a PhD or an MBA, a master's in, in economics, you might not be exposed to any of this historical idea because you'd probably take a lot of math and all of that. And I even thought back to my economics education, I didn't really start to appreciate all of this until I studied some of the history and start, started to see how much religion and economists that were back then, like in Adam Smith's day and prior, they were known as moral philosophers. They had an enormous impact on economic thought and all these ideas that we're talking about. It just it just strikes me that you can't separate ethics and morality from economics, can you? Yeah, yeah absolutely. The As I mentioned earlier, there is this temptation, and part of my intent of sort of going into this was to sort of maybe recreate or remake those connections because we can't sort of divorce these different parts of ourself. If we're going to live with integrity, with in- integrally, we need to be able to integrate these different dimensions of the human reality and have them in the proper balance with each other. So earlier on in development of thought, I think that was understood better that you know, we're talking about what it means to be human. Um, and we can't just sort of abstractly take the math and stick it out there and pretend like it has no impact back to us. And I think even within business, there's a a temptation to sort of get to the science side of business and forget that there's people involved. And I think the more a business can understand what makes for good personhood, both for their team, both for their customers, both for their own life, the stronger and more flourishing that business is going to be. One of the arguments sometimes that I make is that 
uh, I'm firmly convicted that every business should have an anthropologist on staff to ask these questions. And, and maybe it's just, you know, when you're smaller, it's, it's yourself. But these are questions that I think we have to ask. Otherwise, they're to our own detriment and to our own sort of, we can suffer um, collectively and individually um, without it. I'm going to jump in here too, and just just to say, I don't know. I did some research just on on Murray Rothbard himself, and I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but he he self described himself as a mixture between an agnostic and a reformed Jew, which I think is pretty interesting. Um, but I'm not quite sure how the the how the log the excluded middle uh, you know f- flies through that. But but in it, but in his later years, many of his friends actually anticipated that he was going to convert to Catholicism. And was getting close just before he died, which I, I thought was very interesting. Yeah, I, I wasn't aware of that either. It, it's obvious for me, for the, from the part of the book that I've read, that there is a certain um, uh, respect that he has for, for the history of Catholic thought, even when it was wrong and even when he disagreed with it, because, you know, it's far from perfect and um, there's certainly flaws, but that there certainly was that uh, underlying respect for what they were trying to do and how they were able to progress the thought, you know, to uh, Ron's point earlier of, you know, you had the Greeks and then the Romans, but then the story of Western civilization, you know, becomes a story of, of, of a Christian era as well. Uh, although Mary does get into a little bit of what was going on in the Far East too, with, with Taoists and uh, Confucianism and, uh, and things along those lines. But uh, it, it it, it's no surprise to me to hear that that uh, he was perhaps leaning that way at the end of his life. Yeah, as we would say, he he had a a certainly a spiritual, not necessarily religious component to him, which is what this whole show is about. That's why it's called the Soul of Enterprise. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. There, there is a soul to enterprise. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Adrian, you said that it's a it's you you know it's about humans. Business is about humans. Maybe we should have anthropologists on 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 our uh, team. And, you know, we have a mutual friend who loves to say, and I'll quote him, business ain't science. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and just because it's got numbers in it doesn't make it scientific. And, and I think that's one of the issues here. So that's a good segue to my next question. You know, the labor theory of value, which took economists and lots of these thinkers down dead ends, and also even the summing up theory of value where – you, you would get uh, cost of production. Some some of these thinkers even said, oh, well, you can add risk for that and you can add profit. So they were even talking about risk and profit back then, but it was still a summing up type of thing it, and it ignored the customer. In other words, they were looking at it from the business owner standpoint in terms of quote unquote adjust price. And I guess my question is, why do you think cost plus pricing, which is just a form of some of these flawed theories of value, why is it still so endemic in the business world? I mean, there, there's a perfect example of, you know, where a vector of thought can sort of lead you down the wrong direction. You may not even realize you have this embedded assumption and, and critically reexamining it can take you in an entirely different direction. Um, I mean, it's certainly, I think, you know, a lot of our modern day economic thinking and even business thinking is heavily influenced by the industrial revolution that we went through uh, with mechanized work and, and efficiency and the understanding of components being combined together to produce a whole. And while there, while there is some um, truth to it, I, it doesn't describe the whole picture when we, I think when we talk about business and especially when we talk about things that have a more intangible value that aren't a material good 
And so, but I think a lot of that thinking and a lot of the business theories that came out of that period is what got taught in school and just our minds get shaped in that way. And we don't understand that there actually are different principles at play that more accurately describe the true nature of exchange. Uh, one of the thoughts in the book that I thought was helped me see in an even slightly different light was um, when you... Uh, historically, we might think about an exchange as two people when they have an exchange. Let's say you buy ice cream or something like that. Hey, the person gives you the ice cream cone, you give them $2, and it was an equal exchange, and there's a justice in that we've just exchanged two things of equal value. But the actual theory of exchange says the exact opposite, because if it was if they were equal in value, we wouldn't exchange in the first place. The whole point of the exchange is that the person who had the ice cream cone valued the $2 more than the ice cream they had, and on the reverse, the person who had the $2 valued the ice cream more. It's the very inequality that actually causes us to go through an exchange. So for us to say, I can take the ice cream and the milk and the cone and come up with what the value of that thing is, just doesn't make sense. The real question is, what does that other person think? What's good for them and what do they value and what's important and what impact will it have for them? And each person that's going to be different for. So why don't we acknowledge that that broader reality is true and reorient our entire business model and practices to address that um, truer reality of, of human nature? And, and, you know, I think our profession is partly responsible for perpetuating that equality myth. I mean, I've gotten in, in drastic fights with CPAs who argue, like your ice cream example, no, no, they're both worth $2. You know, both sides view it the same. They exchange it $2. So there's got to be that equality. It's like, no, no, you only bought. Otherwise, we could just sit around, swap $5 bills with each other and become wealthy. It, it, it is based on the inequality. But I think our profession with the whole debits equal credits has perpetuated mm-hmm. this idea that transactions are equal simply because we can't measure the customer's profit. Yeah, I mean, and this, I mean, in modern politics as well, you know, the balance of trade and things like that, this sort of wrong thinking can just sort of perpetuate, you know, and ripple through all these things. And we say, oh, we have a negative balance of trade with some other countries. Like, I have a negative balance of trade with the grocery store. Like, I get lots more goods from the grocery store than I actually take to the grocery store. I don't look at that as a bad thing. So this presumption that it has to be equal on both sides, the debits equals credits, um, is just a, if we accept that as the description of the entire economic reality, we aren't understanding that reality. And so as accountants, I think we have to acknowledge that our formula is an incomplete picture. It's not the full picture. And in fact, what's happening as the, as we would describe, the customer is walking away with some profit that isn't showing up on our income statement at all. And uh, it's you know, we only see the line after it translates into sales, but their profit is greater than the actual sale price. And um, if we're good, if we're a smart business owner, we'll, we'll do our best to approximate that customer profit to make sure we are providing more good than we're actually charging for. And that's where a smart business owner who sees this might start to incorporate that into their internal way of evaluating success. But absent that, um, we just sort of miss it. And therefore, we're sort of not firing on all cylinders and effectiveness so just as a quick follow-up and then i'll let ed jump back in here but do you have a specific way example story metaphor that you use with your customers your business owner customers on how to explain 
this idea that we've just been talking about that, that it's mutual beneficial. You both win from a transaction, both sides profit. How do you get that across to your customers? Yeah, it's been something that I've been continuing to experiment with and work on, but what I'm currently doing is in the value conversation, which listeners may be familiar with if they followed your other work, um, part of it now we say, okay, what are the, you know, we want to, we're going to do A, B, C, and D, and I'm not going to jump to the price number yet because the price is irrelevant um, unless it's positioned against the impact. And so we say, all right, we're going to do A, B, C, and D. This is how your situation is going to change. This is how, you know, you're going to be better. You know, what, what impact is it? And have the customer, and this is where I think we have to lead the customer through an examination and exploration of the own value they're going to get. We have to sort of help reveal it for them by asking them questions and say, well, yeah, what does change? What can I do? as a result of this that I couldn't do before. Either what does it um, save me from or what does it actually add to me? And then only once we have an idea of that impact and even put a rough estimate on what that is, then I can come back and say, all right, well, based on this, you know, you know I bl- believe my price is going to range from here to here. You know, does it make sense for us to do business? Because my price... I intentionally want to be less than the value to you because if it's not less than the value, it doesn't make sense for us to do business. And so sometimes that light bulb goes on and saying, oh yeah, that makes sense. You need to create more value for me than you actually charge me. And instead of, um, sometimes I, I describe this as the comparison of the cost minimization approach to the sort of um, multiplier approach. I don't, I want to try to transform the customer's thought process from how little can I get versus how, what can I get and what will be the greatest multiplier for me um, in terms of impact for me. And if I can get them to make that turn, then the price makes sense. Otherwise, they're just going to keep trying to go down, 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 and we, we don't want to do business in that situation. Right. Gotcha. And, and yeah, because you're right, because you're both trying to maximize the value as we talk about constantly. Well, Adrian, this is great. We're going to go ahead and take a break here so we can uh, pick it up in the next segment. And I'll let Ed get back to you. But folks, we'd like to remind you, check out the soul of enterprise.com. We'll post full show notes. And please give us uh, pop over to iTunes and uh, give us a, a review. We love those. And we love getting your emails and your feedback and uh, suggesting show topics to us at Ask. T-S-O-E at Verisage.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Wherever your business is headed, Sage has the cloud solution you need to enable mobile accounting and simplify financial management. Discover how moving your financial data and accounting processes to the cloud can transform your business. Cloud accounting software from Sage can help you make better decisions, drive faster responses, and gain greater control. That's cloud accounting for the journey. For more information, visit sage.com forward slash U.S. forward slash S-O-E. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. 
The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise Wow, this is just absolutely flying by here. We are talking with Vera Sage practicing fellow, Adrian Simmons. And Adrian, I, I just wanted to get your thoughts on, on and, and as you and Ron were, were mentioning, the, the really great thing about the, the work that Rothbard uh, wrote is that he does go into some of these minor figures that not many people have heard of and certainly don't know that they have influence, even, even those that really preceded some of the the thoughts by, uh, in this case, as much as 70 years. A guy by the name of um, Richard, or Ricard, it probably is, because it's, it's, uh, it's French pronounced uh, Cantillon. Um, he, he really, he was the corner of the term entrepreneur some 70 years before Adam Smith. And uh, one of the things that I think is, is so amazing about that is that Smith completely misses, I think, the role of the entrepreneur. And to this day, I think most uh, classical economists, people that we talk of in industry, and certainly people who 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 on the squawk box talk about economics, completely miss the role of the entrepreneur in the economy. And I, I wonder if you could address some of your thoughts on that and how how important that role is, even though it's 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 completely missed by so many people. Yeah, I think. Sometimes modern day, the entrepreneur world just sort of gets equated to business owner, which I, I don't think is the truest sense of the term. Um, but the entrepreneur, I think one of the things at the heart of it is sort of the uh, the risk taking and, and the creativity that they have a um, a reality that they can see, and then they work to sort of bring that a reality about that it doesn't exist prior to that time. And so the role of the entrepreneur. Perhaps is to say, you know, the allocation of scarce resources we talked about at the top of the show to say, hey, I see an opportunity where we can take the pieces that exist out there and we can arrange them in a new way, which leads to an even greater uh, creation of value by bringing those particular pieces together in that way. Uh, and sometimes, you know, in the modern day, you know, with new technologies or new tools or new ways of approaching, we can say, hey, something new is possible that wasn't possible before. The opportunity sort of sees that, uh, rearranges it, and takes the risk, you know, personal, financial, et cetera, takes the risk to sort of bring it to life and then gets rewarded by the market to say, yes, what you've created is good, is worthy, and therefore that reward comes in, in the form of profits. But um, that's, to me, at least a key heart of what the role of the entrepreneur is in, in any economy. And what I think is so important about the point that you're making there, Adrian, is is not so much the, is this this idea that yes, coming together of different different ideas and taking the pieces and put them together in a new way, and a lot of people then equate that with oh, reduction in cost, right? Hmm. Which 
yes, mm-hmm. I suppose to some to some extent it really does. But prior to the reduction in cost, what it does is the creation of additional value for someone else outside the organization. And real, I really can think of no better example of this, and it's overused, especially even on this show, because Ron and I use it all the t- time, and, and that is Uber, right? What, what, what Uber did was put the pieces together in a different way. They didn't really reduce the cost uh, mm-hmm. of, of a taxi ride so much as they gave you more information as the potential consumer of that, that ride ahead of time, and namely – how long was it going to be before the guy or gal showed up in the car, right? And so there, there really wasn't necessarily a change in cost structure per se. It was really more about, no, this is a benefit to the customer who would rather know that it's eight minutes and can follow somebody along on a map than, well, it's somewhere between 20 and 30 minutes before they're going to get there. Yeah, and this is exactly where bad thinking can be blinding. If we're coming at value from a cost plus perspective, we think we can increase value by decreasing cost when the opposite might be true. And and the reality of the situation is that value justifies cost. So we shouldn't begin with the question of cost. We should begin with the question of value. So if something costs $2 and you can sell it for 5 that's a spread of 3 right, if you've captured that that part of the value. But something may cost $20, but if the value you created is 1000 well, you've created $980 in value. If you're just coming from the cost side of the equation, you completely miss the other side of what could have happened should these things have been put together differently. Um, and I call this, I mean, there's opportunity loss. I call this opportunity cost. And in my opinion, this is the biggest um, cost on the professional firm's income statements right now that they're blind to, they can't see, is that the resources they have, the people and the creative and the intellectual and emotional abilities of their people is being devoted to the wrong thing or in the wrong way. And the value that they could be creating is so much greater than what they are creating. And so their opportunity cost is actually that dollar amount that's in the bank account is really a negative when you factor in the opportunity loss. Adrian, I'm involved in a debate right now on a blog that this is with a legal consultant who says that value pricing is hard. It requires way too much upfront work. It's not scalable. And we just need to go to a market pricing type formula. And what's your response to that? Value pricing is hard. Hmm. I mean, of course, nothing worth doing is easy. Easy. Um, yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> but, but I mean, it, it gets to, I mean, perhaps the sort of why you are in business and sort of that passion. If your passion is to truly help people, um, then you're going to continue to look for better ways to help them. Uh, if you're just looking to sort of peel off money from the market, and perhaps there's a legitimacy to that too, then yeah, you don't have the impetus or the energy to actually dig deep to change the situation. That's what separates the entrepreneur from the business owner. Um, I, again, neither of them are bad or worse per se, but they are different roles. Um, the entrepreneur is going to blaze into that new territory and find those new pockets of value that were previously undiscovered. And don't, you know, don't kid yourself. It takes a lot of energy, blood, sweat, and tears to do that. But those people sort of have that drive and they sort of lift society through that work. And there are other folks that after they've pioneered, they can hand off that value proposition to somebody else who can ride it out for its useful life. So um, if somebody wants to approach that, certainly they can. Um, in the long term, I think a market can be stagnated if the whole market is just following that mentality. 
You know, Adrian, we did a show uh, last week, uh, ran a show on the, on the Sage Summit Live that Ed and I recorded. And one of the questions we asked all the panelists, so I'm going to ask you, and we've only got about a minute left. What is the number one mm-hmm. issue facing the CPA profession, in your opinion? Mm. You know, I think it sort of ties to what we were just talking about. I think we have an opportunity right now to sort of change the game and to help our customers better. My fear is that we'll cede that space to somebody else and the CPA brand will then go down in value. I believe, however, there are enough out there that will help push it to the next level to be able to assist and play that supportive and you know, uh, counseling role to the businesses and other entrepreneurs that are out there. But we have to have a proper understanding of value if we're going to help them. And that's what accountancy has done through its history is to help the business owners understand that that picture and if we but we can only do that with the right paradigm fantastic adrian where can people get a hold of you uh, probably the easiest way is to just go to my domain which is adriangsimmons.com right now it's forwarding to my twitter page because i'm working on a, a web migration but that is the best way to find me thank you so much adrian for appearing on the soul of enterprise today great conversation i look forward to having you back ed what's on store for next week Next week, uh, Ron, we have part two of our Sage Summit interview where we talked about accounting innovation. It's not an oxymoron, and we're looking forward to releasing that next week. All right. Looking forward to it. See you in 167 hours. This has been the soul of enterprise, business, and the knowledge economy sponsored by Sage. Energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, check us out at thesoulofenterprise.com. We'll post uh, full show notes uh, with our show today with Adrian and include some uh, additional resources. And also, you can contact Ed or myself at asktsoe at Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend.